Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Event Industry News Podcast. My name is James Dixon, and as always, I wish you a good morning or good afternoon or good evening, whenever or wherever you join the podcast from. And for me, this is the first podcast of the year. We are recording this on Wednesday, the 29th of January, and as many of our podcast listeners and followers will be aware, we, we record the Event Industry News Podcasts once a month. We, we put one day aside and we do all of our recording for the month. So this is my first one of the year. So belatedly to all of our podcast followers, a very happy new year to you and uh, best of luck to everybody for 2020. And on with the first recording of the year, my guest today joins me from Copenhagen. He is a professional keynote speaker, a former newspaper editor and director of marketing. And his name is Samuel Scott. Samuel, thanks for joining the podcast today and welcome. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and as I said to our, our podcast uh, listeners there, you are in Copenhagen at the moment in Denmark, but um, just give, it a, give us a background, a bit of background to your own professional career because you're a, a well-traveled man. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. So basically, I was born and raised in America. Uh, I'm Israeli. I live in Tel Aviv. And uh, about twice a month, I travel and give speeches at businesses and conferences. And just at the moment, yes, I am in uh, my hotel room in Copenhagen, about four hours away from giving a speech here. <laughs> okay. And, and, and could we ask what, um, what the event is that, that you're going to be uh, speaking at today? Oh, yes. Uh, it's, it's a European uh, uh, B2B event uh, agency called Management Events, based, I think, in Sweden. Excellent. Excellent. Well, best of luck with that today. And, um, and, and once again, thanks for joining the podcast. And it's, and it's great to have somebody on whose, whose title is professional keynote speaker. As I mentioned in your introductions there, you are a former newspaper editor and a director of marketing that has progressed into this current uh, profession of being a keynote speaker. Um, and we're going to be speaking on the podcast today to Samuel about best practices and, and about... I suppose some of the experiences, experiences that he has had being uh, a keynote speaker, but um, are we okay to maybe just delve into a bit of background first of all, Samuel, and maybe look at your uh, history as a newspaper editor and director of marketing and just get an idea about how one profession has, has led to the other and how it leads you to where you are today? Sure, no problem. Uh, so basically, my first career, I was a journalist in Boston. And then when the economy crashed, uh, I, I was doing my MBA at the time, and I really liked the marketing classes. So I thought, you know, what the hell, I'll give this marketing thing a shot. So um, like I said, I'm, I'm Israeli. So I went to Tel Aviv, and I got involved in the high tech world there. And uh, my last job was as the first director of marketing for Logs.io, uh, IT log analysis platform. <laughs> and so basically, I was first a journalist, then I went into marketing, and now I cover the marketing industry as a trade journalist in my uh, biweekly column for The Drum. So basically now today, um, I write and I speak about the marketing industry with the mindset of a neutral journalist who has nothing to sell. And that's an interesting, that's a really sort of key point to raise here uh, uh, straight off the bat is that is nothing to sell. Um, because as we, as we move into sort of talking about, I suppose, best practices and speakers, um, many of our podcast listeners will have organized events um, where they've invited speakers and they require a lineup of speakers for their event. Um, and it's very, very rare that you get somebody who even with the best planned and the best delivered keynote speech doesn't have something to sell and that's that's i suppose something that organizers particularly need to be very careful of isn't it oh yes definitely because well 
here are just a few examples. If you bring on someone who works for an agency, a marketing agency, then they will be the, the speaker will be promoting the, the services or types of services that the agency provides. If you bring on an in-house marketer, say for a software, a marketing software company, then that person will be promoting in some way the software that the company sells to the audience. So mm -hmm. even if you're not paying a speaker per se, you know, nobody wants to do this work for free. So they're always going to try and find some benefit out of it, whether it's again, pitching their agency or their product. Now, now just me on my end, speaking is my job. I don't have a book. I don't typically offer direct consulting services. I'm not working for a any company with a product to sell. So I actually have nothing to sell except my ideas. So that's how I sort of uh, approach uh, event organizers that I'm not there to sell a book or something like that. And, and I was reading prior to the, uh, the podcast today, I was looking at your website and looking at, at some of the testimonials. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there was one in particular that leapt out of me that, that I won't use the precise language because... Uh, <laughs> There were some choice words in there, but essentially it was saying, thank goodness for somebody who actually is speaking the truth. And just, just picking up on what you just said there about with nothing to sell and maybe coming up from a neutral point of view, I guess that that puts you in a position where you can give very honest opinions and assessments of, of what you think is good, bad, indifferent within the world of marketing and perhaps give people an honest assessment that they may not get elsewhere. Right. Well, I'll tell you one thing that comes to mind. So when, when I was a journalist in Boston, I covered in part uh, local city and state politics. And, you know, I thought I encountered enough BS when I covered politics. <laughs> but then I became a business journalist. And to be honest, there is, I think, even more BS in the business world than in politics. So <laughs> I, I don't want to name any names. Oh, I do that in my column enough. But uh, but it's just, you'd be amazed at some of the things I hear people say and do either from a podium or, you know, in interviews or even in blog posts. I mean, so <laughs> there is ample material for someone like me to, you know, write about and sometimes expose, sometimes to con congratulate and commend or somewhere in the middle. Mm. Uh, whether, again, I do it from a, from a stage or from my, my pen or my computer. Absolutely. Um, it, something that's just sprung to mind is, is the subject of fact checking. And it was something that, that cropped up last year, either in a podcast or in one of the articles on event industry news. Um, and it was this, a discussion that arose related to facts that are quoted by people who are delivering keynote sessions at conferences. Um, and how often they, they will stand up there and with a voice you know, a very authoritative voice, state statistics and facts to back up whatever it is that they're saying within their session and how people very rarely actually check those facts and statistics and whether or not they're true. Uh, I'm just curious whether or not that's something that you've come across in your particular area and whether or not that's something that you ever address in your own sessions. Oh, yes. <laughs> actually, uh, my most recent column in the drum that came out uh, about a week and a half ago, I actually um, exposed this big PR myth in the high-tech startup world, uh, which is just a perfect example. Um, so here's the gist. So, so many high-tech startups out there, they say, you know, our hiring rate is, you know, less than Harvard University's acceptance rate. You know, we are an elite company and blah, blah, blah. And I found like 30 examples of people, of companies saying exactly that same line because Harvard's acceptance rate is like four or 5%. And like, well, our hiring rate is you know three percent so we're better than harvard <laughs> and so i did some research and guess what 
99% of all businesses in the world have a lower hiring rate from uh, CVs received to hiring than Harvard. No <laughs> one is special. I mean, because think about it. <laughs> it's ludicrous. I mean, unless you're in a high turnover industry, such as food service or telemarketing or something, you know, what percentage of people walking in the door or CVs you get over email do you hire? Again, it's very, very few all the time. So. Just because your percentage rate is lower than Harvard, it doesn't mean anything, but people keep repeating this BS line. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's one of my favorite examples. It, no, absolutely. And this, as, as I said, the, the fact-checking thing uh, has sprung to mind, particularly because just prior to Christmas, we had a general election uh, in the UK. And, and one of the huge things that come out of that election was um, the whole idea of fact-checking. And, and, and when politicians would quote statistics and economic figures, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the... the, the for the first time, I think people really experienced this idea that people were, were delving into the internet and actually fact-checking things. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and that's why it, it sort of linked back to this subject that, that, that cropped up in Event Industry News last year about people who stand up. And I suppose it goes back to this idea that everybody's got something to sell. And like mm -hmm. a politician, they will take a set of figures and manipulate those figures or statistics to their own benefit. And you can give the same set of figures, as I've said before in this podcast, to two different people, and they will interpret it two completely different ways for their own gain. Um, and it's something that, that inevitably goes on in the world of marketing as well, when people have got something to sell. Oh, of course, because what I see all the time is that people just uh, cite numbers in a vacuum. They don't give any context. And the context is what matters. Because I could mm. say, you know, my company, our conversion rate on our website is, you know, 25%. Woohoo. But again, 25% <laughs> doesn't mean anything by itself. Because, you know, I would have to know, well, what's, what are the conversion rates of other similar companies in the same industry? You know, sure. you have to compare numbers, but no one does that. And uh, let's see what else. Look, uh, think about like, oh, my favorite is revenue and profits. Um, Okay, so I won't, again, I won't name any names. If people read my column, they can find out who I talk about all the time. But there is a certain marketing software company out there that says, you know, uh, our revenue, you know, keeps increasing every single year. And, you know, our re we have revenues of, you know, tens of millions of dollars or, I mean, I can have a lot more than that. But, you know, when you, look, when you look at the numbers, the actual income statements, this huge marketing software company on average, loses around, I think, $40 million a year. This is a net income loss of $40 million a year. And last year, that net income loss increased to $60 million a year. So this huge company that pretends we're all so successful and we are huge and we've grown so much and our stock keeps going up, they do nothing but lose more and more money every single year <laughs> because they're quoting numbers out of context. And I don't understand how this happens because, I mean, look at WeWork, this huge bubble that just imploded you know, people quote revenue numbers today, but they never quote profit. And it frankly scares me because, you know, um, uh, growth that isn't really deserved, you know, uh, companies that grow so quickly and so much that just lose money. That has been one of the main sources of every economic crash going back 50 years. And frankly, it does scare me when people, you know, get so uh, excited about growth. And when that growth turns out to be empty, what we, we see what happens. Mm. I've just found that article actually, and for anybody uh, who's got you know instant access to to, to uh, the internet whilst they listen to this podcast, which I'm sure you will, um, if you just search for the drum Samuel Scott and Harvard 
the, um, the, the article should pop up. Um, as I said, we're recording this on the 29th of January. The article was published on the 21st of January. And just a quick scan through it whilst you were making your last comment, Samuel. I could, uh, it, 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 it's, my first instance is this is something I'm definitely going to read once we finish recording because it, it does touch on some of the things that we were, um, we were asking. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about today as well is, is from a, a best practice point of view, um, mm -hmm. I guess you are in a semi-luxurious position, going back to what you're saying about not having anything to sell as such when you are asked to come and speak. But mm. does, your, does the structure of your keynote session when you are asked and invited to come and deliver it, broadly speaking, stay the same? Or how has it changed from event to event to make it relevant to the audience? Or is it relevant to all audiences? Sure. So basically, I, I have a set of, you might say, overall themes that I typically address. And I take, you know, and, and usually an organizer will take one of those themes and say, you know, oh, I'd love a speech on this. And then I will mm. customize it for that event or that country. Sure. And does it, I, I guess that, that from a business point of view, because I read a, a few years ago that, that really the best keynote speakers are the ones who don't just you know change it uh you know based on the event mm -hmm. um a lot of people and again i don't know what the statistics are on this i won't quote them for fear of being fact checked but <laughs> as somebody who works in the events industry and work has worked at a lot of conferences i would say that the majority of people that i've dealt with prepare their sessions probably in the 48 hours prior to when they're actually going to stand on stage and deliver it uh, well, well, either I'm doing something very right or very wrong because I think I'm the exception. I, I because this is my job, I take it very seriously. Um, my, um, I actually rehearse, um, you know, one of my main keynotes in my flat every single day. Uh, like, like say, if you're in a band, you want to practice a set, you know, at least once a day, once every couple of days. Of course. I, I give a speech in my in, in my flat to myself basically almost every single day just to keep doing it um so i don't just do the whole, do the whole thing two days in advance absolutely and, and and what may be a very strange question but one that i think is particularly relevant do you find that by rehearsing it and therefore knowing it almost like an actor would learn a script to mm. a, a a play um that you don't turn around as much and look at the screen behind you? Uh, well, no, I mean, I, I personally never, never do that because you don't want to turn your back to the audience. But uh, what, one thing I, I ask for is to have one of those monitors like sort of on this on stage center. Uh, sure, yeah, a comfort basically. monitor, yeah. Oh, exactly right. So yeah. basically, um, I just have one of those in, in front of me. We're showing the current slide and my notes. And so I just use that. The reason that the reason that I ask it and it is a sort of a, a loaded question because uh, you, you're an experienced speaker. Um, and again, this is this is uh, maybe a bit of advice from me, but I see an awful lot of people who when they're underprepared or nervous about delivering a session, 
probably because they have only put it together in the 48 hours prior to the actual event itself, that mm-hmm. they, are, they are guilty of constantly turning around, whether they be stood at a lectern or stood, you know, just in the center of the stage with a clicker. Um, they will constantly be turning around and looking at the screen behind them, almost as a safety net, almost as sort of double check, is it on the right slide? What am I speaking about? And, and that to me, the constant turning around always suggests somebody who is underprepared for their session because they shouldn't need to be double checking it all the time if they're 100 percent prepared um because very rarely do you have somebody who comes to deliver a keynote session who doesn't know what they're talking about they'll know the subject matter they could probably stand in a bar with a beer after the the event (laughs) and talk all night about it without turning around once but it's almost like a reflex action that people do when they are underprepared for a session that they're constantly turning around um i find it it's, it's, it's a strange trait Oh yeah, definitely. Because uh, that, I mean, not knowing, I mean, obviously this example is hypothetical, but that does show a lack of uh, preparation. And actually, if you want my number one tip for event organizers, uh, there is, you know, one thing I would suggest for both ends is that both uh, speakers and organizers need to be uh, prepared and need to communicate all expectations and needs very uh, far in advance. Because basically my number one rule is that neither the speaker nor the event organizer wants to be surprised because surprises in this profession are almost always a bad thing. Uh, mm. Can I just tell you a short story from- Please from do, please yeah. do. So basically, uh, I was at this huge event in Russia. I believe it was about 1,500 people in the audience. And I'm the first speaker, the first you know, speaker, keynote speaker on the first day, I'm opening the entire event. You know, I get there to the venue, I think at about uh, eight o'clock, I go on at nine. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm walking backstage. So, you know, they're micing me up. Turns out it was a, a, a headset mic. And the, and the mic, the headset doesn't fit or there's something wonky with it. And uh, I, I love British slang, by the way. Yeah. And so, so it, it, it keeps falling off my head. It, it doesn't stay on. So they have to like run and find a hand mic. And they just shove a, a hand mic in my hand. And I've never used one before. So I'm like, how, where do I hold this? Like how far away from my mouth? What do I do? Like I was a little bit worried because, you know, they just had to, you know, get rid of the uh, headset at the last minute. Mm. So I'm like, okay, I, I've got a hand mic, I'll figure it out, whatever. And then, uh, what was it? So I, I got the hand mic, I go out on stage. Oh, and then, you know, right before I go on stage, they, they give me the clicker, you know, so it's 1,500 people in front of me, you know, my intro video plays and they're all looking at me and I walk out on stage and I say my opening joke and then I click to the first slide and you won't believe what happened. The, the clicker, cl- the battery was dead. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, bleep. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, I, I've got this hand, I've got, I've got a hand mic that I don't really, not comfortable with using, and the clicker is not working. I can't go through my deck. Mm. And all these people are staring at me. And so basically, I just had to, I, I actually signaled the AV people who are in the balcony. I like had to gesture, like, can you roll the next slide, like yourselves? Of course, and, yeah. Oh God, I, I felt so bad for the organizer, even though I'll tell you why, I believe it was, you know, it was their fault because they weren't prepared, of course. But, you know, but, but I'm there to do a job and I, I felt like I failed, but you know, the organizers were, you know, like it's, it's understandable. We didn't know the battery was dead in the clicker, like it was fine, but I felt terrible. And so, so basically my, my number one piece of, piece of advice for organizers is to check everything the day before the event or at least a couple hours b- before the event, check the headset, check the uh, clicker, uh, go through the deck. I, 
um, when I go to an event, I always find the AV, AV people, my favorite mm -hmm. people in the world because they yep. help me do my job and I make friends with them. I bring them coffee, everything. And so I basically, I go through my deck with the AV, AV people and I check the, any videos I have to make sure they're going to play, uh, any animations play, you know, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Like I do this at every single event. I Absolutely. check everything. And it, it just amazed me when speakers don't do this, even other professional speakers that I know, because um, they just show up and they expect everything to go right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's a fantastic point to raise because you, we, we talk, as we have done today and on previous episodes of the podcast, about best practices for the speakers and how to be prepared and all the rest of it. Now, unfortunately, if you go in there completely prepared and 100% confident of what you're going to do, and then you're presented with a number of variables that you weren't prepared for that are out of your control, mm -hmm. that, 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 that's, that's not going to help you at all as a speaker. And as an event organizer and as somebody who has, you know, worked as a technician at, at events, who has done AV, but has also worked as a coordinator alongside other AV people, that the best thing you can do is, is be prepared and put your speakers in the most comfortable scenario possible to allow them to flourish on that stage when they step onto it. Um, and I think that, that there are great technicians out there and people who can make the equipment work. But actually, when you're dealing with, with keynote speakers in this particular example, I think one of the best things that you can be as a, as a technician, as AV person, is, is personable with people to be able to communicate and talk to them and put because people are nervous aren't they you know and you've probably worked with hundreds and hundreds of different AV guys and the ones that will stand out to you the ones who you know do their technical side of their job really well but who are also really easy and pleasant to work with oh yeah definitely because I've had a AV people personally come up, come up to me afterwards and say thank you for going through your deck with us nobody ever does this and we get blamed if something doesn't work so they were they were thanking me for doing this mm -hmm. and because it, you know, it helps me to do my job. It helps them to do their job. And yeah. again, I just wish more speakers would do that. Um, so actually, so that sort of goes into like my, my number two piece of advice, if, if you'd like. On, sure. And this is more on the admin side. Um, so, you know, like personally, I have so much respect for event organizers because all of you are juggling like a hundred different balls all at the same time whenever <laughs> you run, run an event. So it's really hard. I mean, it's really easy for some things to slip through the cracks. So um, one best practice that I have personally is to uh, gather all the admin stuff in one place for both of our reference, me and my contact. Like, for example, I have a, a template that is a Google Doc. And this Google Doc has spaces for, you know, me and my contact to fill out everything, you know, from venue address, contact details, my bank transfer, you know, details, uh, local transfer details, um, the speech topic, the conference theme, conference hashtags, you know, anything and everything that we both need to know for my talk, it is all in this one, one sheet Google Doc. And whenever I, I book a new event, I just make a copy of this Google Doc email to them and say, hey, can you fill out your half? I'll fill out my half. And anything and everything we need is all in this one sheet. And it makes my life and their life so much easier. So I, I would really recommend that people do something like that if they don't already. Absolutely. And I suppose that, 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 that is that born out of having had experiences where organizers have not asked you those details? Because yeah, I, I would say, you know, some organizers are brilliantly prepared and will actually make a, a concerted effort to, to request that information from from their speakers from all of them that want to know all of it others maybe less so so do, i'm curious to know do, 
does that level of preparation that you proactively take come from experiences where those things haven't been done by the organizers? Yes, uh, I'll give one example and where there was just a, a miscommunication. So uh, for like, for example, in this one sheet, um, it, you know, there's also a column or a row, I mean, for, you know, payment terms, you know, like, you know, contract details. Sure. And, and this comes from one experience I had. So, you know, I gave a speech in, uh, where was I? Hold on. <laughs> Sorry, Amsterdam. Okay. And I forget sometimes <laughs> where I've been. Uh, so basically, uh, the, organizers, the organizer said, yeah, we'll send you your fee, you know, you know after the conference. I'm like, okay, fine, cool. And uh, so basically, the con conference is over. I send my invoice. And I never hear from them. Turns out uh, my contact went on holiday for like a month right after the conference. And then when she got back to the office, she sent me an email. Oh, I just forgot to tell you, um, our uh, accounts payable department, they have a policy of, of a net 90. And uh, that means they don't pay invoices until 90 days after, after they receive them. So basically my contact gave accounts payable my invoice a month after the event when she got back from holiday and then they paid me 90 days from that day so i didn't get paid for about four or five months and you know i know different companies have different payment terms but yeah. i just it would have been nice to know that at the beginning you know just because it threw me off it, it didn't it felt like there was a miscommunication yeah but that, that, that that's another i suppose a bugbear in mind but i always find it fascinating that um in that particular scenario the person paying can dictate to you what their payment terms are. And I always find it hilarious that if you went into a restaurant and they presented you with the check or the bill at the end of the meal and you said, right, my payment terms are 90 days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, it just wouldn't happen. And yet in the world of business, we accept this other way of thinking where the person paying the person for the service that they provided can dictate when that person is going to get paid. And I always find that very 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 strange um and and i know it is what it is and you're never going to change that in business but you know as i'm sure thousands of other people have have, have, have had the same uh, thoughts over the years that it's, it's a strange one with payment terms and on the subject of that one thing i'm uh, uh, again would like to ask is this uh current role that you have as a professional keynote speaker and mm -hmm. again my experience of, 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 of conference speakers and, and is that the vast majority of them are unpaid. They are invited to present or deliver a session at a conference or an expo or a convention, whatever it may be. And the likelihood is, is that they will be unpaid to do that. And this ties right back in, I suppose, almost to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is that they're likely got something to sell, regardless of how they spin their session the chances are they've probably got something to sell and are organizers doing themselves a, a, a disservice by not paying for the vast majority of the speakers that they invite to come to their conferences. Um, are they leaving themselves more open to the scenario of a speaker stepping on stage and effectively putting a sales pitch out for their business? Well, uh, full disclosure, since this is my job, I, I am biased. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure everyone knows that. But my, my simple uh, take is you, you get what you pay for. And, you know, no one's going to, well, I mean, okay, first of all, I'm sure everyone knows this too. Like, you know, creating a speech, you know, it's a lot of work. You know, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't tell you the number of hours I, that 
go into it before I walk out on stage. It's, 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 it's work. And it just always fascinates me when so many events out there uh, don't want to pay for someone doing work for them that makes them money. Because, you know, conferences, you know, are either standalone events that want to make a profit or they're used for marketing purposes by businesses or what have you. So the speakers are there to help the company. And I think they should be compensated for helping the company. But again, I'm biased. Mm. So, um, but, but you are right in the overall point that no one is going to do all this work, you know, not to get some benefit. And for people like me, the benefit is, you know, a check. And for other people, it's to sell something uh, sure. that that's. So, so you're always going to pay in some way. Either you're going to pay in money or you're going to pay by having a speaker, even in a very subtle, inoffensive way, trying to sell something. Mm. Uh, you just have a choice of which one you want to do. Sure. And um, it, it, one thing that I noted in your, um, in your biography, Samuel, is that uh, <sighs> utilizing the experience that you've got as a journalist, both you know previously and now in, in your column that you, you produce for the drum um, mm -hmm. and your experience in marketing, one thing it says is it, you you perhaps show or talk to businesses, conferences, universities about the true present and future of the marketing industry as a neutral observer. I'm just curious to get your take on where you do see the future of the marketing industry because I I talk to a lot of agencies uh, through the podcast. We are constantly talking to and, 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 and finding out about people who've got an opinion on where they see marketing going. But in the same way that you talked about speakers often having something to sell, you know, people will often put a slant on things based on their own particular interest and their vested interest as a business. Um, where do you mm -hmm. genuinely see the, the future of marketing going in the digital age? Uh, a couple points on that. So first of all, uh, one, uh, again, I wrote a column on this topic as well, um, but I really do not like the word digital because digital is just a type of technology. It uses, you know, binary ones and zeros to do something. Sure. Uh, and the thing is, like today, um, almost all TV signals that, you know, your sets get in your living rooms um, are no longer analog. They're digital. Uh, radio is going digital. Uh, digital not analog and again you know every uh channel and uh medium online that's obviously all digital so really um they use the phrase digital marketing or dig digital age it doesn't make any sense anymore because everything is digital mm -hmm. so that that's my my first point um <clears throat> my second point is that you know even though you know everything is now using digital technology uh, individual channels still have the pros and cons. Like, for example, you know, uh, you know, like TV has its pros and cons. So does radio. So does print. So does social media. So does PPC. You know, uh, uh, every marketing, I'm sorry, Marcom channel out there has its pros and cons. And for example, some are really good for brand building at the top of the funnel, and some are very good for what was used to be called direct response, and now people call it lead generation or whatever at, at the bottom of the funnel. Like, for example, TV is probably the best brand building medium that has ever been invented, but it's, it's less good at bottom of the funnel direct response most of the time. Mm. In contrast, um, oh, and, and also uh, event sponsorships are also very good at brand building, but not so much getting people to buy something right now. Mm -hmm. Now, in contrast, um, online channels specifically, you know, take AdWords or Facebook or whatever, uh, they're very good at bottom of the funnel activity, uh, getting people to take some type of action right now. And also 
than tracking and measuring it. So uh, what I think is that basically, actually marketing and Marcom doesn't really change that much. What changes is uh, the channels that we have available to use. Like for example, we didn't, we didn't have TikTok, I think you know, probably three or four years ago. Now, now it's an option if we want to use it or not use it. But you know, still the whole marketing process, you know, from uh, product, price, distribution, and promotion, you know, that doesn't change. You know, your marketers will always have to, you know, study the market, look for a hole in it, uh, think about pricing, think about, you know, the product, you know, that will never change because human beings sure. never change. But what we see is that the promotion tactics can change. Um, yeah absolutely it's interesting you say that the promotion tactics can change so just just to pick up on that i had the radio on just the other day and i was listening uh to the radio to radio station through my smart speaker at home um and radio advertising is fundamentally not changed has it you know you you have the radio show and then they break for two or three minutes and there are a selection of 30 second adverts that, that that run um but what I just noted the other day that I'd never, re I'd never realized before is that the advert on this national radio station quoted specifically to visit my local store in my town. And that's mm -hmm. where, the, that's where the, 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 the subtle changes, isn't it? That the, the actual style of advertising has not changed, but how they can actually direct it has. Exactly. My, my basic take is that, you know, the need for strategy and actual strategy, not what people think is strategy, uh, that will never change, but it's the tactics that mm. can change. Uh, because the tactics um, come and go, you know, and for each, for each company or each brand, you know, they're going to change. But the big picture, the, the strategy, the need for strategy will never change. We've been talking on the podcast today to Samuel Scott. Samuel is a professional keynote speaker and has joined us on the podcast today from Copenhagen, um, based out of uh, Tel Aviv. Um, Samuel, it's been brilliant having you on the podcast today. Before we, um, before we wrap up and we let you go and prepare for your session today, um, if any of our podcast followers want to get in touch with you and find out a little bit more um, about you and maybe speak to you about what it is that you do directly, um, how can they find you, social media or website or otherwise? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, uh, again, thank you for having me as well. It's been a pleasure. My website is samueljscott.com, but you can just Google Samuel Scott Marketing or whatever. And I'm also Samuel J. Scott on Twitter. Um, and you can just search for Samuel Scott on Twitter or LinkedIn as well. Very simple. And, and also, I should point out, go, go and uh, get onto the drum.com and, and search for Samuel's regular uh, bi-weekly, I think you said, um, column yes. that he writes for the drum. So it's a really interesting subjects on there. And one of which we've uh, actually spoken about earlier on today's podcast. If you are listening to today's podcast via your favorite podcast platform, don't forget to head over to eventindustrynews.com where you can see video versions of all of our podcasts. And while you're on there, you can also check out some of the latest news, features and special supplements that Event Industry News is producing. Of course, conversely to that, if you're watching today's video uh, podcast, hello to, to you all. Um, and head over to your favorite podcast platform and downloader and you can access the audio versions of all of our podcasts to listen to whilst you're out and about on site or on your commute to and from the office that brings us to the end of today's episode our thanks once again to our guest today samuel scott my name is james dixon and we will see you on the next episode of the event industry news podcast thank you and goodbye <laughs>